with all this food, you know, I've recently had a daughter and I look at the food that I give her and I think if I'm not prepared to give it to her, why would we give it to our customers? You know, I want to know where the food comes from and I want to know that if I'm buying the food, exactly like this morning, I went out and picked up the figs and stuff, that the money that I'm paying for goes directly to the people that grew it. Today on Dirty Linen, we are heading to Northern Victoria to beautiful Brown Brothers Winery in Millowa to chat to Chef Bodie Price. Bodie, welcome to Dirty Linen. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's such a lovely part of the world uh, where you are. To give it, put us in the picture. Just tell us about the winery, the restaurant and the countryside around it. Uh, so, yeah, it is a beautiful part. Um, I moved up here a few years ago now and I kind of haven't looked back. It's been, it's, you know, it's a different pace of life up here. But the winery itself situated in Millua, which is a tiny little suburb just outside of, I suppose, Wangaratta, Myrtleford, your next kind of biggest towns. Um and, you know, it's just a, it's a beautiful place to be. We've got a lot, nice on-site kitchen garden. So it's a bit of a focus of what we do for the restaurant. Um, like everyone through COVID, I suppose, we've gone through leaps and bounds and changed what we've done that many times. Um, when I first started, the restaurant was Patricia's restaurant, uh, Patricia's table. Um, and now we've gone from a set menu from a winery restaurant, that two and three course traditional style, to a la carte and now back to a solely set menu um, based on COVID obviously and staffing and same as everyone. Yeah well I mean we were chatting recently and what I was really struck by was the way that you turned some of these extraordinary challenges into positives and I think you know you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you've come out of it or, you know, you've come to this point. Let's not jinx it by saying we're out of it. You've come to this point feeling better about the restaurant that you're running than you were a few years ago. Yeah, look, it's been it's been a huge learning curve for myself as well. Um, but I've been one of those people that it's been, for me, fortunate that um, I work for an amazing company that's looked after all their staff through covid um, through the big ones of 2020, you know, we were able to put some of the guys into the winery. So they, you know, learned a different part of the business. Some went into the gardens, some went into packaging. So we all kind of looked after really well. <clears throat> um, but we've adapted along those times where um, whilst doing takeaway, we've got a lot of spare time. So we've used that time to kind of learn new skills for ourselves. So, you know, we've got a nice charcuterie program on the go at the moment. Uh, we make... Uh, we started playing around with making cheeses. Um, you know, we try not to waste anything. So it's been been a really good part of evolving and learning how we, you know, we create dishes and stuff is by purely having all this wasted product that we don't want to waste. So we ferment it and we pickle or we dehydrate and, you know, kind of stock up the pantries for when we were back to capacity. So it's been been an interesting, uh, interesting time out here. Yeah, and do you feel like, you know, without that forced pause or I guess, you know, scaling down, scaling back, that you wouldn't have had the, I guess, the thinking time to come up with some of these ideas? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think if we didn't have COVID, we would probably still be Patricia's table and we'd be still kind of having the same offer because, you know, if it's not broke, why fix it kind of philosophy. Um and it was a successful um, offering that we were doing. It's you know this has just given us time to adapt and change. Like since I've started, it's been a pretty crazy roller coaster. We've had 
I started a few years ago and then we went into those crazy fires and then which that led straight into COVID. So it's it's been a bit of a open close, open close for a lot of my time here. But, you know, giving me that opportunity to play around, learn, you know, grow the garden further and understand that I've never grown a thing in my life before coming out here. So that's been a bit of a learning curve of how a garden works. It's a very different way of thinking about your food. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. I feel like a lot of chefs have become much closer to, you know, the cycles of growing and the seasons. And, you know, for yourself, you're actually growing stuff. So there's that. But I think a lot of chefs, even if they're in the cities, they're having, you know, deeper and, and more frequent conversations with with growers and farmers, suppliers, and I suppose just trying to really uh, create more synergies between menus and, yeah, and what's actually growing. What What do you think about that? Yeah, definitely. Like my day this morning started off by I went out to our local orchard and I've been going there the last couple of years just as a um, a customer for my personal use and they've got amazing produce and they're just really nice country people. So last year and then this year we've gone, I go out and do a lot of help with the fruit picking as in I pick my own fruit as they don't have a lot of uh, pickers so I don't want them to waste all their fruit. So we pick a lot of cherries and plums and stuff for home and peaches but this morning I just went and picked up um she just texted me and said we've got all the figs are coming through so we just picked up eight kilos of figs um and this you know this region's amazing that I come in this morning with eight kilos of figs heaps of peaches and then my gardener he's brought in a box of figs from his tree I'm swimming in figs now look um so it's a bit of a different uh I don't know different way of looking at it where when I was back in Melbourne you'd kind of Yes, you know what season you're coming into. It's just slightly different because you physically see the produce growing out here. So you have time to look at it and, all right, eggplants are just starting to come through the garden now and we're starting to pick them, but they'll start coming in in the next two weeks pretty prolifically. So, you know, it's a different way to look at the product instead of, I don't know, thinking of a protein first and then adding your garnishes to it. We've got the produce that we've got and then we add the protein to if we need to. Um to it so it's, yeah it's a bit of a different way of looking at it yeah that's so interesting as well just thinking about I guess a lot of people are thinking about eating less meat there's obviously you know veganism is not going anywhere and there's a lot of people that eat plant-based food even if you know they'll sometimes eat meat as well and that's really interesting to think about it as not so much a conscious choice to go vegan but just that you're so driven by this bounty in front of you that yeah you might just think well there's actually no need or, or no place for meat on this on this dish well, there's a lot, yes, there's a lot of dishes we kind of we try to. If it's a vegetarian dish, we kind of question: does it need to be vegetarian or can it be vegan? So there's certain components that we might play around with. You know, the last one that was really nice was a um, head of broccoli that we roasted off, and we made a smoked macadamia miso, and we turned that into a cream with macadamia milk. So the whole thing was vegan. And it's one of those dishes that every time someone had it, they're like, oh, it's, it's really meaty, smoky. It's, you know, heaps of flavor. But when you tell them it's vegan, they don't, don't quite believe you. Um, and I think it's like, you know, you've got to think about food a little bit differently. If we don't, if I don't need to add the dairy to it, don't add the dairy to it. Like, don't get me wrong. I love cheese and I love adding all these kind of things to it. But there is certain components to a dish that's, you know, there is a lot of vegans out. And as a chef, you get so many dietaries every day in your restaurant. And it's really easy once you've got these components there that you get a vegan or surprise vegan. It's really easy just to change dishes or they already are for us. So, Yeah. Well, I definitely think a lot of, um, you know, I suppose another movement or trend is that 
one dish does the job of all covering all the dietaries. So it sounds like when you're basing things on veggies, it's probably easier to do that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Bodhi, tell us about some of the cool ferments and projects that you've got in the kitchen, you know, that are based on what you're seeing in your own garden. Uh, yeah, so we, uh, we're in the tomato season at the moment. So we do a lot. I love one of my favorite fermented products is just a fermented tomato, like a lacto fermented tomato water. So we just 2% salt the tomatoes at the moment, like in this region, you know, there's so many Italians around, which comes with great produce through this region. So just outside of Shepparton, there's all the um, tomato plantations out there. So we get, you know, buckets and buckets of them at the moment because they're, it's the Posada season up here. Um, so we ferment all them and we take all that beautiful water from it, which is like a, the richness of a, a sugo, but the consistency of water. So it's really just handy to add like little flavor bombs into whatever we're making. But then that, product that you're left with of the tomatoes is still really tasty to throw into your sauces or dehydrate and use as a bit of a seasoning um so you know a big focus from the garden is we don't want to waste anything so everything we grow organically if we can't find a use for it we just have a flavored oil which i've kind of marketed as garden waste oil purely as a conversational point because a lot of people sit there and go that sounds a bit gross um so it was the point of uh showing that we just because it's a byproduct in some people's eyes doesn't mean it still didn't have some flavor to give. So, you know, you thread that stick of rosemary, that stick still got flavor. Same with the bay bay tree. Those bay leaves have got flavors, but so does the plant. There's, you know, the stalk of it as well. So any of these byproducts, we'll just throw them into a big kettle and kind of cook up a flavored oil. Wow, I absolutely love that. And I did want to ask you what the response has been from diners. And uh, I guess when, you you know, people might just eat this delicious broccoli and just be like, yeah, that's super yummy, can't believe it's veggie, whatever. But then to actually be quite explicit about the the no waste philosophy, it takes it another step. Like what what kinds of conversations, I suppose light bulb moments, does that open up with, with you and your diners? Yeah, it's, yeah, like the garden waste oil definitely a lot of people ask it and, you know, it's that, that's the first thing on the menu is the, our housemate sourdough with our garden waste oil. So people obviously look at that and they have to, you know, it's a conversation point straight off the bat. So at the moment we're a set menu. We kind of do about nine or ten dishes over three savoury courses. So the first round's like snacks kind of thing and then entrees mains. But that first round, you know, there has to be a conversation behind that because it looks pretty yeah, I've had people say it sounds like bin juices. Of, you know, what is it? What's a garden waste oil? Um, so it's been, it's, you know, that starts off, um, I suppose, the story of what we do and it makes it um, a bit more understanding of, you know, the length that we go to, to like, you know, we don't, I don't like to waste anything. Um, so, it, you know, it is that conversational point that the waiter and the customer can have and then kind of sets them up for the meal as we go through and, you know, there might be, the dehydrated fermented tomatoes that we use as a seasoning because then it's just a really nice lactic acid tomato flavour just as a seasoning. So, you know, one one component of a dish could be in three different three different areas. So Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, love that. Um Bodhi, tell me about your coriander seed project. <clears throat> yeah, so that was a really good one. So we grew the coriander predominantly just for the flowers. I really like the flowers. They have a a bit more of that floral note that's not a lot of people find, I think it's one in three, the statistic is they find it soapy coriander. 
Um, so the flowers, I don't know, to me, have less of a soapy flavour for these people. Um, and once the flowers are there, it's pretty quickly they go to seed. So when you get those little green coriander berries before they dry out to a seed, we've been picking them and we've pickled them and stuff before, but we salt them at the moment, turn them into a caper. Um, and they're amazing. I got that. I just not my idea. I felt, saw Joe Barrett um, did it and she got the idea from someone else. So, uh, you know, these beauties, beautiful things with Instagram, you can find these little, little um, techniques and stuff, but they're, they're amazing. They like a little uh, floral, salty caper, you know, very coriander flavor, but they're like little bombs. So we pair, we pair that with a dish at the moment. Yeah, we pair it with a dish at the moment with just some raw Oregon salmon. Um, all our chilies from last season, we made up a huge fermented chili uh, mix. So we've still got that from last season. So that'll last us until this next lot comes through now. And, you know, maybe that was because of COVID as well. We've had a bit of uh, um, less customers, obviously, to use it on. But it's quite handy that this one dish has got, you know, last season's fermented chili, new season, coriander, uh, we've got some cucumelons on there and then uh, I just go and get some local avocados out of Glen Rowan and just quickly make up a quick mousse out of it. Uh, and then whatever flowers we've got in the garden, kind of garnish it off and some succulents. So, yeah, it's really nice. It's just it's, it's one of these things that seems quite easy when, to come up with some dishes now just because you kind of walk through the garden and we've got such a variation of products now. So, it's yeah, it's been really cool. Yeah, sounds sounds so good and so rich, like such a, you know, a journey through time with, you know, food from last season and that you've got the food because of COVID and then you've, yeah, just um, the the creativity that's right in front of you every day. It's just, it's just, it seems, it just seems very cool and very, very enriching and I imagine quite satisfying. It is. It's a different way to look at, like, I've never looked at food the same since moving out here it's very different. Like when we first moved out here and just before I got the garden going, because it was one of the first projects that I wanted to get into, we'd kind of go, this whole region's got so many um, like produce, um, uh, like produce boxes and stuff. So you can just go up to like a farm gate and pick up, you know, some fresh organic produce and buying those kind of things directly from the farmers or, or you know, small little producers it's a completely different flavour to what I'd ever had before, purely just because it's been picked that morning or, you know, literally as I've all, I'm asking, have you got this? He'll go out and pick it for me. So it was a, it's a different way of looking at the food now. And I suppose um, with all this food, you know, I've recently had a daughter and I look at the food that I give her and I think if, uh, if I'm not prepared to give it to her, why would we give it to our customers? So, you know, that goes down that organic line of, you know, I want to know where the food comes from and I want to know that if I'm buying the food exactly like this morning, I went out and picked up the figs and stuff, that the money that I'm paying for goes directly to the people that grew it. And there's so many producers out here that, you know, are so close and local that you're buying directly off, you know, our local producers. We've got Miller Chickens, like a K up the road, and they're lovely people. We've got Walkabout Apri Honey literally across the road from the winery. So there's... There's just so many little little bits and bobs around here that, yeah, just make it – it's a really enjoyable place to be. So, Bodie, obviously, you know, your food world's expanded a lot since you moved up to the country, but tell us um, what got you into the industry and what your ambitions were when, when you began. Um, I'm not quite sure. It's not an overly romantic story. My, my grandfather's Italian, um, so food was kind of – you know, every Sunday was roast around at Nanampas and – it was always a nice 
you know, family kind of orientated thing, but I don't think it was really, um, I didn't really uh, get involved with it, I suppose, and uh, really pushed me into the career. I just kind of took up the subject at school and kind of liked it and figured I was okay at it. Um, and then, yes, got into hospitality. But it's been one of those careers that I'd never go back. Obviously, I love what I do. It's got me to travel around the world. Um, yeah, not so much we can do that at the moment. But it's um, yeah, it's been it's been a yeah real whirlwind. I've done a lot in that time, so it's been really good. Well, tell us some of the highlights. What have you actually? What have you got up to over the years? Um, so after I grew up in Bendigo. I uh, started my apprenticeship there with the Van Handel's first restaurant, Clogs. Um, moved to Melbourne and then started working at Stokehouse as well. Um, then I met my partner and we went overseas, lived in London. That was really fun. Um, so I worked at um, Claude Bossy's Hibiscus and then I went on to run a pub in Notting Hill, which was awesome, really good fun, very tourist pub, you know, classic um, English, you know, steak and ale pies and fish and chips and stuff. But it was a really fun place to be, really nice little community in Notting Hill. Um, come back, worked at the Stokehouse again. Uh, went, worked with Alona Staller. Um, they were lovely people. And I've taken a lot from um, Barb, Jin and and what how they run their business. And, you know, they're just lovely people. And then back overseas, done a lot of... Done a lot of travel through Europe when I was in London. Um, then before moving to Canada, we went through South America, did about eight months of travel through there, lived in Canada for a couple of years and then back home. And then after coming back home, I was working at the Atlantic um, and then we decided we'd want to start a family and, you know, an opportunity come up in Millua. Uh, my friend was working here at the time and, yeah, we just thought, hey, let's give it a go. I didn't really want to have kids in the city and, you know, be working the double, double, double kind of life that we were doing. So, you know, it's quite nice up here. I started at 8.30 and I'm done by about 4, 4.30, which is quite lovely. Wow. It's what a lot of adventures. It's just, um, yeah, a real, it's, you're an advertisement for a hospitality career. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, like I was always told through, you know, this is 18 odd years ago or something when I started cooking, Everyone was always like, oh, you won't, you won't enjoy it. It's, you know, horrible pay and you work when all your friends are off. And I just kind of liked it. I got into where when starting my apprenticeship at Clogs, you, you just get a whole new family of friends, like through hospitality. That's all predominantly a lot of my friends are now just through hospitality. But it's, um, it has been something that's given me the opportunity to work all around the world. Like everyone needs chefs wherever you go. So wherever you wherever you land as long as you get your visa and you can find a job really easy yeah um what was clogs like i don't know anything about it and it's a, i didn't even know that the van handles started in bendigo yeah um it's just a, it's one of the busiest restaurants in bendigo i suppose um it's just a takeaway pizza and then they just have a a la carte kind of menu um when i was there i think they had i don't know maybe five Five mains on, five pastas, um, pizzas and stuff, obviously. But it's just a beast. It's one of those places that, that um, opens at 5 and would close at about 2 a.m. So it was the, on the main street. You'd always get, you know, a lot of drunk people walking past getting pizzas, but then they'd have, you know, up the back end of the restaurant, people always sitting around the bar drinking all night. It's just, you know, it's a really, 
really clever business for what uh, Bendigo was. And that's before they, they obviously moved down to Melbourne and started up their empires down there. Yeah, so interesting. And yeah, you mentioned working at Alona Stoller with um with Barb and and Virginia and and the team. Um, so they've closed Alona Stoller during I think after like about a year ago now, or a bit longer than that. Um, but Chichalina is still going gangbusters in Ackland Street. What was it that you took from those restaurateurs? Uh, they're just they're just really nice people. Like. They've, I've worked in a lot of angry kitchens and, you know, it can be quite stressful and they're just not like that. That's, it was made quite clear coming in that this is just a really nice family-run business and I remember Barb telling me ages ago that she's like, we're not in it to be rich, we're just in it to make a living and do what we love to do. Um, and, you know, Alona Stall was very much community. We, you know, in Balaclava, you had so many locals around. If there was Jewish holidays on, you'd, you know, be diff- you'd be busy for a different reason because of something else going on that you might not see in some other suburbs. But they were just, I don't know, they were just really lovely people. They they don't want you to work a million hours and they'll pay you for what you work. And, you know, it was just a different business model to a lot of ones that I've seen and worked in over the years. Mm. Do you think that the industry overall is changing in terms of that, you know, shouty culture and, you know, that it's normal to work over the hours and um, just push on? Yeah, I think it is, and it is for the better, I suppose, as well. Um, I think through COVID as well, everyone's had to change so much and gone through much adversity through this time, and, you know, it's – I suppose the industry doesn't want to be known for uh, horrible working conditions and getting paid peanuts, and it's been – you know, I I believe that it will – it has changed quite a lot – yeah, people are starting to get paid probably what they should be paid. And, you know, I just went down to Melbourne last week and I can see already just on the menus the price difference, which means, you know, it's a little bit more expensive, but you're paying for what you kind of should be getting. There should have nev- never been a reason to be undercharging a menu because you undercharge your menu, you have to underpay your staff and, you know, work them extra. So it's, you know, looking like it is going to change. And I think that culture of the angry kitchen, you know, that's a thing of the past, um, and it's not accepted anymore. That's really good to hear and really interesting that you've identified those increased prices. I think it's um, so many businesses have thought, well, if I'm not going to draw a line in the sand now, then when? And hopefully there is an increased understanding from diners that, you know, things just have to cost what they cost. Yeah, and look, I'm, I can't remember if it's this podcast or uh, the Deep in the Weeds one. They talked about that at the start of the pandemic and, you know, there has to be change within within this um within the hospitality sector, we, you know, you can't afford to be charging someone uh, some of the menu items because people just didn't want to pay it. Well, it has to, that's what the price is. That's how much it costs for the premium produce and then the people to make it and, you know, the bill, that there's bills everywhere. So it's, it's good now to see these prices starting to increase. You know, like when I was in um, Denmark, you pay $8 for a coffee because that's how much it costs for a, a cup of coffee for that person to make it. Um, so it's, you know, it's, you know, as much as you don't want to pay, pay too much for certain things, but that's what it's, that's what it is. Like maybe it's not as affordable to go out every single meal and it should be a little bit more special and you pay that extra money for it to make, make it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I reckon you're right. Like I think we, we, me and Huck definitely have spoken about that on both of our podcasts early in the pandemic and it's been a theme all the way through. But I reckon this other, the produce-driven side of it 
is something that I think has changed for a lot of people through COVID, but it's not something that people had thought so much about intentionally like, oh, this is something else that we can do during this period. That's kind of seems to have snuck up on people, I reckon. What do you think? Mm. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, 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 obviously a lot more people are wanting to know where your, where your products and stuff come from now and um, that they've been ethically sourced and they're, you know, grown in the way that they want to they wanna consume the product. So I think there's a bit more of awareness about around what's on your plate um, and, you know, then people are more willing to pay for it once they kind of know what it is and where it's come from. How important do you think, like, that, uh, you know, bin juice um, philosophy is to keeping your um, – <laughs> Like making it all stack up cost-wise, because obviously, yes, you've got to charge what, what you need to charge, but do you think that some of these um, other strategies really do help you balance it all out and not raise prices to a point where it's uncomfortable for diners? Yeah, well, it would have to. Like I, all these like little byproducts that we've kind of got in the pantry are not just a cost-saving exercise. Yes, they, they do help, obviously, but it is, um, to me, they were just, a wasted flavor that could have been enhanced into something um, as a bonus. Obviously they make it more cost effective on the menu because I can then use that as a seasoning for something that I wouldn't have had to buy an external product in. But it also they give my guys in the kitchen a new skill to learn and a new way of looking at the food as well. So when I'll ask them for an idea, they'll be like, oh, remember we've got that in the pantry. Oh, great. So we can pull that out. And it saves us having to, you know, go through a supplier and try and find a product that would maybe suit it. We've kind of got that byproduct through the kitchen. And how are you finding it, um, getting enough staff in the kitchen in front of house? <laughs> Rough, like everyone. It's always been hard up here um, to attract people, I suppose, because we are we're kind of in the middle of nowhere up here. Like there's not a lot around. Um, I was trying to think of this the other day when we were in Bendigo, Staffing was never an issue, but we had a large um, uni there, Latrobe Uni. So there was always staff coming. Where around here, the closest is Aubrey Wodonga, like it's a large kind of student-based. Um, so it's extremely hard. We've lost, I lost half the kitchen through um, vaccine mandates, and then we've slowly started getting a couple back now. But then the front of house has been, you know, he's been hit massive out there, and we've, you know, really struggling to get the staff out there. So at the moment, it's, you know, we're at capacity based on our staffing limits rather than capacity of density limits, which is a bit of a difference to what we're used to, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, what percentage of capacity are you able to do? On a day now, like we could probably pack out the restaurant and we could do, I think, 80 is what the capacity is at one by two square. And at the moment, we do about 40 kind of a day. So... It's a bit bit of a difference for what we're used to. Um, we've got so many weddings booked, obviously, through this season, and they take a big priority to us because they're, you know, it's booked, and we've got to kind of, got to kind of do it. So it's, um, yeah, it makes it makes it hard. Um, we've just lost a heap of the staff. Obviously, the front of house staff all go back to unis and stuff. If they they live up here, they might come. They come back for the Christmas break, and then they're all shooting back to Melbourne and, and you know back to their unis and stuff now. So. Yeah, it is. It's just quite hard trying to find the staff, and I know that's the same everywhere. Um, but it's definitely quite hard up here. 
Yeah, definitely an added layer to the challenges for the regions. But yeah, it's a, it's a real shame because it sounds like, I mean, it's just thinking front of house, you know, there's, it feels like there's, I'm sure the dishes speak for themselves, but there's so, such great stories as well. It's a shame to think about not having, um, having the humans to, you know, pass on those stories. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah, it just makes it a little harder. Like, you know, it's a big draw card coming up here for myself was it's daytime work in a winery and it's a, you know, it's a beautiful location where, you know, trying to convince people to be up here to me was an, it's an easy, easy solution. It's, you know, it's beautiful. It's a different way of life. It's a bit slower, but it's lovely. But it is hard to, you know, draw people up here because a lot of people, as I did in Bendigo, wanted to, you know, get away from where you grew up and move away and go and learn new things. But I've got to a point in my life, obviously, where I wanted to go backwards and slow down a bit and yeah, so it's a bit it's trying to trying to convince people to come up here for a, a different way of life, I suppose. Yeah. Oh well, I hope that somehow eases off. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Bodhi, it's been so fantastic to listen to you talk about food and just really get a sense of your passion for what you're doing. Is there anything else that you'd like to chat about? No, I don't think so. I do appreciate coming on though, Danny. It's been really good. Yeah, it's been so good. Um, yeah, I, I think it's really exciting, just, you know, so responsive to what's growing and just all, it just feels like walking around your cool room. It just must be a very inspiring um, place to be. So, yeah, thanks for sharing it with us today on Dirty Linen. Thank you, Danny. Appreciate it. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is